Good morning, everybody. I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you do not have your copy of the Scriptures with you, you'll notice we don't have pew Bibles in the pews due to all the different guidances that we have to, uh, because of the pandemic. So the words will be on the screen as we go. This morning we'll approach the text a little bit differently than normal. We'll work our way through it progressively throughout the sermon. It's a longer section of Scripture, but it divides rather nicely. And as I think of the book of Ecclesiastes, and I think about chapter 1 and chapter 2, I think about the experiments of life. The experiments of life. We all do them. Some of us do them for a season. Others of us are constantly doing experiments. And the reason why we do is because at the end of the day, we're all just trying to figure this out. All of us are in the same boat, muddling our way through, trying to figure out life. The experiments of life are a way, uh, the ways that we seek to find out what we like and what we don't like. What makes us happy and what doesn't? What gives us a sense of meaning and purpose and what leaves us feeling empty? Everyone performs these sort of experiments or tests in life. Children start it when they are babies. We do it all the way up until our dying days. At the end of it all, everyone performs experiments just to try to figure it all out. The book of Ecclesiastes is a book about gaining a meaningful life. King Solomon was wise beyond measure. He was the king who seemingly had infinite financial resources, who made mistakes but also had great successes. And he wanted to experience, in the midst of all of this, a meaningful life. And as we work through the book, you're going to see this uncanny ability that he has to articulate things that are common to the human experience. Things that we all think about or pursue, or experience. And in the second half of chapter 1 and chapter 2 this morning, we see that Solomon is pursuing meaning, and he's pursuing pleasure, and he's seeing where it leads. The king performs a series of experiments, four tests that will decipher whether these things are truly meaningful in life. And these are tests, I wonder, if you have engaged in yourself. Some of you might even be experiencing these types of tests right now. Let's see what Solomon has to say about them. The first test we see in chapter 1, starting at verse 12, and that is the test of the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. Let me read it for you. It says, starting in chapter 1, verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity. And striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. And I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were 
over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. Solomon says that even this noble pursuit of understanding, all that is happening under the sun, is vanity. And you might remember there are a couple of specific phrases in this book of Ecclesiastes which are important for us to understand because they're repeated throughout the book and we see them right here. The first is the phrase, under the sun. What Solomon means when he says under the sun are he's talking about a life apart from God. A secular life that he stands back and observes that all humans sort of naturally engage in. The second word is the word vanity. What does that mean? It's not a word that we use often today. But in the book of Ecclesiastes, the word vanity has the idea of expressing something that is transient. Something that is meaningless. Vanity is like a breath that is here one moment and gone the next. And in verse 14, he defines it by saying, vanity is like striving after the wind. You can try to catch it, and it will slip through your fingers. And so as Solomon considers life, he gives some striking terms. He says that the busyness of man is an unhappy business under the sun. And the reason why is because as he gains understanding, two proverbs emerge which point out their shortcomings. The first one is verse 15, and you might summarize it this way. When you see everything that's happening in life, no matter how wise you are, you realize that the crooked cannot be made straight. And it's like striving after the wind. Wisdom and knowledge of a person cannot bring about the large-scale societal justice and righteousness that the wise person wants. And the fact that you can now see it more clearly. You see what needs to happen and you do not have the ability to change it. The fact that the crooked get away with their schemes. And that the crooked maybe even get rich off their schemes. And you can do nothing about it. Is perpetually frustrating to the wise. Secondly, he gives another proverb in verse 18. He says that the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge is vanity because when you have great wisdom, great vexation and sorrow follow. I'm sure you've heard the old saying, the more I learn, the less I understand. Or the more I know, the more I realize there is so much more that I don't know. This is the curse of the wise. This is the curse of the intellectual. Wisdom is good. Knowledge is good. But it's not ultimately fulfilling in its nature. Its pursuit seemingly is unending. 
And in this pursuit, there's this inevitable disaffection with the ways of the world. And so when you test for the meaning of life, when you're told from a young age that if you are the smartest, you will have the greatest meaning, if you are the intellectual among your peers, then you will clearly have the greatest level of depth of understanding and the greatest sense of purpose. Solomon says, this pursuit fails the test. And that leads to the second test, a test that hits close to home for many. This is the pursuit of pleasure. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. He said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions, herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I had also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all those who were before me in Jerusalem. And all my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all of my toil. And this was my reward for all of my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Test number two is the pursuit of pleasure. The prevailing view of the world that we live in right now is that if I have just a little bit more, then I would be happy. Then I would be fulfilled. Today we live in a culture that trades in experiences and in material pursuits. We want to do more, and we want more. The advertising industry exists to convince you that you don't currently have what you need to be happy or to have a meaningful life, and so often we buy what they're selling, but only to be left wanting more. Beyond that, I wonder what the ways are in which you pursue pleasure. What is it for you? For some of us, it's just to live life and get through the weekend. 
to abide our job, the thing that we don't really care for, so that on the weekend we can actually do the things we want to do. We can have fun. For others, it's the next vacation, the next time we can get down to Florida or Arizona or maybe to the mountains. For some of us, it might be a nice car or the pursuit of a bigger house. For others, perhaps it's relational pursuits or sexual pursuits. And for some, it could very simply be to have the next nice meal, to eat and to drink and to be merry. Everyone has those things that give them pleasure. Yours might be different than mine, but inevitably there's some overlap. And the ongoing temptation for us in this life is to let those things be the things that drive us, to be the things that consume so much of our thoughts and our affections and our goals and our desires, to become the things, the pleasures to become the things that we really live for. Solomon decided to test his heart against all of the pleasures that he could in self-indulgence. And so first it says that he tested with laughter. And he said that it is mad. And then he tested it with wine. And it doesn't indicate whether or not this means that he was regularly drunk with wine or maybe he had just come to enjoy nice wine. He'd become a wine connoisseur. I'm guessing it's probably the latter because it says that his heart was still guided by wisdom, and it's pretty hard to be guided by wisdom if you're hammered. But either way, he was left unfulfilled. So he built himself houses and a vineyard for himself and gardens, and he was the master of his own domain. He did something that was incredibly impressive. He did the upgrades to his house that you want to do to yours. Ever expanding in its nature. He built for himself his own personal paradise. A secular garden of Eden, if you will. Nothing was off limits. There were no forbidden fruits on the trees. And then he added to it herds and animals and servants and people. And finally, he decided that he would test himself with sensual pleasures. Singers and artists came into the mix. And sexual pleasure through many concubines a common pleasure for all and a desire for pleasure of sex, Solomon took his sexual pursuits to an entirely different level. First Kings verse, or chapter 11, verse 3 tells us that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Erotic luxury was his whenever he wanted it. And so when you take a step back, you look at This part of chapter 2, and you see these phrases. I searched, I made, I built, I bought, I gathered. In verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. This is the intense form of consumerism. Laughs and wine and houses and servants and entertainment and sex. It is good to be the king. 
Most people think to themselves something like, if I just won the $100 million in the lottery, I could live like the king. But I wouldn't live like that king. I'd be much more responsible, to be sure. But for Solomon, he did whatever he wanted. There were no limits. And as a result, verse 10 tells us, my heart found pleasure in all of my toil, and this was my reward. But then I considered all that my hands had done, and behold, it was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The pleasures of life, they do provide some pleasure. (laughs) But it ends there. They don't provide lasting fulfillment or meaning. They fail the test. Many of you know the story of Ernest Hemingway, the famous author. He was born in 1899, and he was the epitome of the 20th century adventure-seeking man of pleasure. At age 25, he sipped champagne in Paris. He later had well-publicized big-game hunts in Africa, grizzly bear hunts in Northwest America, and trophy fishing expeditions off the coast of Key West, Florida. And at the age of 61, after having it all, wine and women and song and a distinguished literary career, Sunday afternoon bullfights in Spain, Hemingway chose to end his life, leaving a note that simply said, life is one blankety-blank thing after another. Ecclesiastes says that this is what seeking for ultimate meaning through pleasure is like. King Solomon wants those who read to wake up to this fact before they are 61 years old like Hemingway and look back and realize that it's too late to have meaning and fulfillment that they're seeking. Friends, if you live for the next pleasurable thing, it will never be enough for you. It will be short-lived in its nature and you will always be left wanting more. It fails the test. The third test for meaning is seen in verses 12 through 17. And let me just summarize it quickly by saying, this test is the pursuit of wise living. And Solomon says that in this pursuit, there is benefit to being wise. Your life is better if you choose to live wisely. And he equates it in verses 13 and 14, to say that the unwise one is the one who walks in the darkness and the wise one is the one who walks with the eyes in his head. He sees life clearly. It's better to be wise than unwise. But the same thing happens to the wise and to the fool. They both die. They both will be forgotten. And the benefit of wisdom is gone when you are dead. 
Wise living is important, but it fails the ultimate test for meaning. And that leads to the fourth test. The fourth test is the pursuit of our work. Let's look at verse 18 together. I'll read it. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all of which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. Solomon tests the pursuit of his work, his toil, and many of us can relate here because we love our jobs. We find them to be important. We find them to be productive. And the temptation for so many of us is that as we look at our work, we devote all of our time and our effort and our energy and our affections to that very work. And having the right perspective on work is really important. Solomon's learning it the hard way to be sure. But so many of us know intuitively that we might be just out of balance a little bit when it comes to our work. That we work maybe even more than we should, that it takes up more than our time than perhaps it should, that we know that the children probably need a little bit more attention from their dad. But I have work to do. And the grandchildren probably could use some affection from grandmother, but I have, I have work to do. And And we say to ourselves in those moments that even though my perspective on work is a little bit skewed and the balance is a little bit out of whack, that at least I will be able to leave something behind for those who come after me. That my stamp on history is going to be what I give to them. My legacy from beyond the grave. But here, the king finds great frustration as we just read. You leave your work to the one coming after you, and who knows what he will do with it. Who knows if he will be a wise man or a fool. He will get the credit for the things that you have done, even though you're the one who were vexed by it and stayed up late at night trying to figure it out. And he will enjoy the benefits, even though you were the one who labored for them. Upon finding out that he had pancreatic cancer and that his death was imminent, Steve Jobs, the founder and CEO of Apple Computers, was forced to make plans for his successor. He wasn't planning on handing over the reins so soon. And so rather than stepping out of his chair. This man who had the final say of all things at Apple 
whose design genius and demand for perfection was unparalleled, decided to keep the reins of this company for another seven years while he battled cancer. It wasn't until the final year of his life when Tim Cook finally succeeded him as Jobs passed away at the age of 56. 56. It's not very old. He had built an empire. He had become one of the wealthiest men in the world. He had just completed construction on his state-of-the-art personal yacht. He was at the height of his ability. And someone else would reap the benefits of all of his toil. (laughs) He would conclude in the last year of his life, it's strange to think that you accumulate all of this experience and it just goes away. The truth is, you don't know what your coworkers are going to do with your work after you're gone. You don't know how your kids will handle your money after you die. It might last a generation, maybe two, maybe longer. But somewhere along the line, the person who inherits will be a fool and they squander what was given to them. And if you're the one who lives for your work, then all that you lived for and your imprint on history will be gone. And the results will be sorrow and vanity. Solomon would find this out better than most as one of his heirs would squander away nearly 80% of the kingdom. Living for your work doesn't pass the test of meaning. And so where does that leave us? Kind of a depressing place. Seems like all the things that we strive for All of the things that we strive for, all the things that ultimately don't give us what we want. They don't give us lasting meaning. They don't reinforce purpose. The pursuit of knowledge and intellectualism, the pursuit of pleasure and accumulating and building and wise living, and even the pursuit of work. All of the things that we typically experiment with in this life to find out if they will make us happy, to find out if they will give us pleasure, to find out if they will give us lasting meaning and purpose and direction, none of them passes the test. But these things seem good to us, don't they? I mean, it's good to gain knowledge. It's good to build and to take dominion over your property. I mean, we would think that the things that make us feel good are good. That wise living and hard work are noble pursuit for our days. But Solomon says that they're all vanity. Transient. Frustrating in their result. It's like striving after the wind even if we succeed at them all. In his book, Actions Speak Louder Than Words, Herb Miller writes of two Kentucky farmers who owned racing stables and developed a keen rivalry with each other. In one spring, each of them entered a horse 
into the local steeplechase. Thinking that a professional rider would give him the advantage, one farmer went out and hired a crack jockey, one of these guys that really knew what he was doing. And as the race began, the two horses were neck and neck, and they pulled away from the field almost immediately. And as they made the first turn, they were neck and neck, and into the second turn. And as they made their way down the back stretch, the horses began to bump up against each other and the rail. And before you knew it, boom, both riders were on the ground. And the horses had thrown them off. The professional jockey remounted quickly, and being so far ahead of the rest of the field, he rode on to win the race. And returning triumphantly back to the paddock, the jockey found the farmer who had hired him to be fuming with rage. And he looked at him and said, Well, what's the matter? (laughs) I won the race, didn't I? Oh yeah, you won the race, roared the farmer. You won it all right, but you crossed the finish line on the wrong horse. In his hurry to remount after the fall, he had jumped on the competitor's horse and finished the race, giving the victory to another. You know, success is meaningless in life if you cross the finish line and you're in the wrong. Success is only meaningful when you're in the right and you understand what makes that success meaningful. And that's where Solomon leads us to. In verses 24 through 26, the end of this passage, there's a surprising turn of events that happens. After bringing us down the path of striving after the wind, he says in verse 24, there's nothing better. This is conclusion. After all this testing, this is the conclusion. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat Or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. So to conclude this series of tests, Solomon says that true pleasure in the gifts of God come when you delight in God. That when you go through life seeking pleasure, it will not ultimately give you meaning in and of itself. But when you have pleasure in God himself, then he gives you pleasure in the gifts that he gives. It's only when you see them correctly in their place. C.S. Lewis once wrote, If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, pleasure for the sake of pleasure will never satisfy 
Solomon points out that the unsatisfied longings of the heart gives us a spiritual hint that we're made for the pleasure of God. We saw it stated four or five times. The pleasures of the world for their own sake are like striving after the wind. It's like striving after the wind. I tried this and it was like striving after the wind. They cause us to recognize our need for something greater, our need for God. And so when you put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you're restored and forgiven and brought into a relationship with God. And God, when he becomes the center of your life, reorients your outlook and all of the pleasures of life. You're no longer living under the sun. You're no longer living a life apart or secular from God. He becomes the center. And your greatest delight, your greatest joy, your greatest pleasure is now found in Him. And when that happens, all of your earthly possessions fall into their proper place. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is a fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. True pleasure in the gifts of God come when you delight in God Himself. True pleasures in the gifts from God come when you delight in God themselves. And so, if you run back through his lists of tests, you can see how they might actually have pleasure when they're in God, that you can pursue knowledge and wisdom, and it provides you with the ability to process life in him. Or you enjoy laughter as a glimpse of eternal joy. Not laughter that's demeaning or crass or immoral, but laughter within the boundaries of God's design. You can enjoy wine as a gift from God. (gasps) Yes, you can. Psalm 104.15 says that God gives wine to gladden the heart of men. Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen a man's heart. That doesn't mean that you abuse it, that you have license to get drunk and to sin. You enjoy it for God's intended purposes. When you create a garden, you display beauty. You conquer your own domain by making your home nice, enjoyable for you to live in, a place you want to go home to after work, and a place that's hospitable toward others. In those times, you're taking dominion over the earth, as it says in Genesis. You're tilling the soil that God has given. You're using your creative gifts. That doesn't give us permission to become overextended financially, to buy the nicest house that we can find but that we probably can't afford. You will almost certainly be in trouble at that point if you live unwisely outside of your means. But it does mean that you can enjoy your home as a gift from God. True pleasure in the gifts from God come when you delight in God himself. You delight in the gift of sex. 
in a powerful and meaningful way when you do so the way that God designs. When He gives you a spouse to enjoy and the physical desires meld with the spiritual and the emotional. And this becomes infinitely more powerful and fulfilling and enjoyable than a series of one-night stands or short-term conquests. High schoolers, college students, listen, this is radically different than what you're hearing in the culture right now. That sex is great, but it is great when it's in God's designed way. Martin Luther once said, if the Lord has given one a wife, one should hold on to her and enjoy her. If you want to exceed these limits and add to this gift, which you have in the present, you will get grief and sorrow instead of pleasure. And pleasure comes to your work. That it's good to enjoy your job knowing that God Himself is the one who provides skill and insight and opportunity for you to contribute something positive beyond yourself. Now, when work becomes your life, we miss the point. When all we know how to talk about outside of work is what's happening in work, we're probably out of balance. When our work becomes the only thing that we derive meaning from, when we derive meaning from our accomplishments, at that moment we are seeking to define ourselves by the gift, not the giver. But true pleasure in the gifts of God come when you delight in God Himself. I wonder if you have satisfaction like that. <laughs> if your pursuits feel like striving after the wind, or if they have lasting delight. I invite you today, delight in God. When you do, you can truly enjoy the gifts that He gives. Colossians chapter 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The whatever you do, do in the name of the Lord Jesus, well, that includes learning and eating and drinking and building and working. And so enjoy these things as God has designed them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the many, many good gifts that you give us. Forgive us today for the ways that we seek to elevate these gifts and delight in them wholly and completely. The temptations that we have toward work or to pleasure or to knowledge. Help us to delight in you and to enjoy what you've given us in their proper way. In Jesus' name, amen.